Thank you for joining us and welcome. You're listening to Hey Siri Podcast and I'm Tom Siri. I'm the founder and CEO of RealSelf.com, something I've been doing for, well now, 13 plus years. And something I really am passionate about is sharing things that I discover and learn. I like to look for not just what trends are out there that are apparent, but underlying insights that can be gathered by looking at meta information, paying attention to consumers and what they're saying in our platform, and spending a lot of time with my audience, which are made up of doctors, practices, individuals who have industry relationships in the aesthetic space. Welcome to another episode of Hey Siri. This is Tom Siri, and I'm your host. And I am so excited to take you to places that go beyond what the Siri app can take you on your iPhone. And today, I am so delighted to have a guest named Mary Fisher, the CEO of Color Science. And Mary, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time. And I'm really excited to dig in and talk to you about a bunch of things. Thank you. I'm so honored to be included. Love the podcast. Yeah, thank you. One thing that I have been thinking about during this period of the pandemic COVID era where I think it still has stands that it is very hard to get noticed, to stand out, to get attention for a company, a brand. We serve at Real Self quite a few doctors mm-hmm. and for their clinics. And it's always been a challenge. But even with COVID, it seems even more so because you lost a lot of your traditional channels. You, you don't see people as much in the physical world. And it's almost all gone digital. And I think in skincare, it's probably one of the most competitive spaces in consumer product goods to get attention to stand out. And you've done it repeatedly. And I am so excited to talk to you about that and your career, but your entrepreneurship and other aspects of you know, what has helped you as a professional and as a brand and as a leader stand out. Thank you. I think we are learners and we adapt rapidly to change. And I think as a team, we take change in stride. So, you know, whether it's volatility, uncertainty, change, ambiguity, right? Whatever it is, this team that I'm so lucky to work with pulls together to figure it out. And so we made some decisions last year to be truly omni-channel. So we operate within the walls and hours of the practice but also outside. And we take our physicians with us outside the practice. So we have tools to stay connected with them. Heather Goodchild, who runs the professional business, as soon in March as it looked like practices would need to be shutting down, she was hosting webinar after webinar just for a peer-to-peer discussion and for us to be able to hear and learn how are you doing? You know, we're friends. We've been in, in aesthetics medicine a long time, just checking in doing video conferences and brainstorming how they're going to get into practice. And she had three of these a week. And one thing I never heard was we're going to have a special protocol so that our sales reps can get into the practice. Hmm. I did hear that only patients were going to come to the practice and even teenagers for a derm appointment, their mom or dad would have to wait in the car. So we just eliminated that from our focus and started to think about how to orient ourselves to what they're really going to need going forward. I heard that from your last podcast too, when you had your friend Ken on, and it really resonated with me because we're living it. Yeah. Ken Meyer was a guest here, and he's one of those individuals who gets parachuted into companies in trouble and in a way that he carries so much 
team orientation as you just started out saying? It starts yeah. with, the, you know, it's not just about you, it's the team. And how do you get that team point in the right direction? Before we go too far, some people may not know you from previous experiences, but also color science. My own experience with color science, I don't think I'm your target customer necessarily, <laughs> but I will say that one of the first experiences I've had in this industry when I started Real Self 14 years ago was to go to a trade show and one of your representatives gave me a couple of your products for free, samples, I guess you'd call them, but it was full-sized. And I brought them home and my wife was like, this is a great career change. <laughs> she, was like, she loved the product. She found it really differentiating in the sense that it was a kind of, I believe, a combination of sort of makeup and sun protection. Yes. With minerals. And, but I'll stop there. That was my experience. I might have brushed it on my face a few times just to try it. <laughs> but please introduce yourself a little bit more in your company. Sure. So CEO of Color Science, previously CEO of Skin Medica. And at Skin Medica, we had searched for some people call them adjacencies, but we knew that mineral makeup had a role in the practice. And at that point in the market development and in the company's development, it was really practices that had a makeup counter or a makeup artist on their team. And so still a color brand, but we knew from our physician partners that it really was the best brand from a clinical standpoint. It was cleanest, it had high antioxidant ingredients, other specialty ingredients like peptides. So at Skin Medica, we, we had that brand on our radar screen, almost to be a bridge brand to the consumer and we acquired the company. And then exactly one year later, Allergan came to acquire Skin Medica and we were able to spin color science out and really pursue the true value we saw in the brand as multifunctional. And now where we are today, we have a lot of tailwinds, a lot of trends in our favor. Did they not see your thesis of, as you called the bridge product, did Allergan just want to focus more on just one line or how, how did that come about? The decision was made to spin it out. Yeah, I think it was a, a couple of things. My counterpart on the deal was David Endicott and just a very thoughtful, smart, professional guy. And he said, look, we face the specialist here at Allergan. And our relationship with the consumer we see as being built through that specialist physician. So we don't really know what to do with a consumer brand. And so if you guys wanted to spin it out, and grow value on it. We're open to that. And I said, yeah, you're, you're looking at her. I want to spin it out. So. Was it hard to let go of Skin Medica though? Is it, you know, oh, it's your, your yeah. baby, right? Oh yeah, it's brutal. It's brutal. Those kinds of changes are important. They took the whole company of Skin Medica in as a division. So the employees were winning. The brand was winning. Allergan was winning. It was definitely an excellent way to move the company forward. But yeah, it's really hard to make those big changes. Mary, uh, one of the things I start out saying in the beginning of our podcast is that obviously you know this, skincare is a hyper-competitive space. I have no idea how many SKUs there are in the market. What, what tens of thousands? Is that? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> You're right, of course. <laughs> yeah. But somehow, somewhere along the path of Skin Medica, you and your team were able to break out from the clutter, the noise, and really become a well-known product to consumers, but also to your distributors, your channels. 
And I was just wondering if you can look back and say, oh, it was this one thing that really put us on the map. It, it, it really was this incredible execution around some single point in time. Or was it just a whole series of things that were about you know, operational excellence and getting yourself to a place where it just takes an incredible number of efforts to get it to stand out? When I joined the company, we were most known on the cosmetic side for TNS, that red growth factor serum that is so efficacious in eliminating the fine lines and wrinkles and how much they appear on the skin. So when I joined, it was basically TNS and a medical pharmaceutical dermatology division. And my job was to grow the pharmaceutical business. Some things happened that were huge. So one is a regulatory change that basically evaporated our steroid pipeline just by virtue of reclassifying formulation names, which then rendered our innovations generic before we even launched. So that was a big change on the pharmaceutical side. We also hit the economy. So I joined in April of 2008. And by the end of that summer, Bear Stearns and Lehman had fallen. So we had some economic headwinds. Very little information was available to understand what that meant in practice for a first-time CEO running a dermatology company. So we right-sized ourselves. We hunkered down. I said, look, everybody has to share the same pen. Don't turn the lights on at the office. And let's focus in on those physician partners that do both medical and aesthetics derm. And you know, we have a relationship with them. They know our products and who we are. Let's just focus on them. And it was 60 accounts. And during that year then into 2009, where the economy was really still quite difficult, those accounts grew 65%. But the bigger part is that we moved in with them, right? They were having a really scary time. Treatments were down. They weren't sure if their practices were going to survive. So by moving in as practice developers and using take-home care and self-care as an adjunct that would not just take care of their patients, but help fund their practice during that time, we all survived it together. And so it was bonding. And then I think another element was we implemented an educational platform. So we did pharmaceutical grade clinical trials, but not everybody knew that. And so being able to educate our partners in that top 65 and beyond was enlightening to everyone involved. And I think really added to the caring, added a base of trust, and really extended our partnership together, all focused on patient outcomes. And that was a big learning for us as a company and something we deployed. Heather Goodchild, who runs the professional business at Color Science, was a key architect of that educational platform. Did you have a experience in that process where, well, I wouldn't call it process, it's just adjusting to incredible amount of adversity and, you know, there's no playbook kind of moments, which is very common for early stage companies, for sure. It's a, wow, haven't seen this one before. Pandemic, who would have thought? Yeah. Um, as an example, um, did, did, did you have to find something inside yourself to overcome that challenge of what your team was going through, what your customers were experiencing? Did you explore something about yourself and dig deep into something you grew, you know, that's either native in you or you grew into as you became an adult and a professional? I think, you know, my mom was an emergency room technician, x-ray tech. 
And she was also just a natural first responder. I remember one time pulling out of a parking lot and an elderly man walking with a walker across the street fell down and she jumped out of the moving car and yelled back instructions to my sister and I on what to do. So I think some of that's probably innate. I think the key is to put the fear aside and just take your intellect and think through as critically as you can what's really happening here. And if the answer is, we don't know and neither does anybody else, you made it to stop to figure it out. So we were a first mover on furloughing most of the company and put a skeleton crew in place to stay open. Not everybody was closing down. And so that's hard to do. We had to write a plan that would allow us to get through a shutdown and maybe worse, but leave it open to be able to come back and then grow again. And finding that balance can be difficult. And then the biggest thing for me, and it's still going on, is understanding how each member of the team is processing these changes and what else are they going through in the face of this. For us, really, the first clue on why we should furlough rapidly is that the schools were going to close down. We're a 90 plus percent female workforce and they had to get home and school the kids. A couple of guys do it too, but it was mostly the women who had to get home because now the kids were home. So I think we were able to adapt quickly. And I think the team is happier for it today that we did because it allowed us to just hit the brakes on the professional channel. Because we're omni-channel, we could lean into our anniversary sale on e-commerce, which our physician partners participate in. And so here's this machinery that's still moving and setting new records because now people are home. So it was an interesting opportunity to pivot. You talked about your mother and I was trying to dig into there a little bit about something that maybe is imbued in you, something that you can look back as a child or something that you did to stand out yourself to help you know, differentiate yourself. Because look, let's just be honest, there's not that many female women leaders, CEOs in the world of aesthetics, for instance. It's a very rarefied position you're in. And part of the reason I really wanted to talk to you, actually, I'm just so impressed by how much adversity you had overcome personally, if not just you know, structural challenges that come with that. And I just wonder if there's something you were thinking about when you're younger, maybe early career that you know, gave you that, that ability to climb that ladder, so to speak, and achieve where you are today. I think both my parents, we come from very modest beginnings, my sisters and I, and, but we didn't know that growing up. And never for a minute would we have an impression that we were unable to reach for something that interested us. And having that backing of such hardworking parents with really strong values, I think it just never occurs to us, even today, that there's something we can't do. And, you know, I joke around with people who say that they say, you're so humble. No, no, I'm not. I'm not humble. I'm not self-important, but I do wake up in the morning every day with the intent of complete world domination in a benevolent way. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I really, I reject, and I don't know how to always respond to this, is when people say, oh, 
you are so courageous to start real self. It's just amazing. And that word courageous doesn't fit with the way I mentally process it, the framework by which I approached starting my own company. It was just sort of a natural fit to what I wanted to do in my career, not so much oh my gosh, I'm taking massive risk and I'm jumping off the ledge here. <laughs> it sounds like you have a similar sort of perspective. Is that true? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of just a natural path for you to where you are today. I think if you're genuinely curious and you get passionate about something, then first of all, you have to focus because that can take in a lot of directions. <laughs> and it's, so it's something I have to control because I'm curious and excited about most things. But I think in terms of, am I taking on something giant? Maybe, but the first step is the only one you're going to actually take. And then you're going to take the second one. So, you know, I think it's important to plan and analyze and be careful, but you also have to learn and adapt in, in real time. One of my board members is Nikki Kinnaird, the founder of Space NK in the UK. So huge success story and a very approachable, relatable person, very smart. And so I I write down everything she says because she's she's wise. And she says, you have to have the courage to follow your instincts. And in her case, that was being the first to have a storefront, a retail space with an edited, curated collection of products. And that's not how products were being sold at the time in the categories that she carried. So she was breaking a mold. She also says that she was getting the word no a lot because she didn't appreciate that she didn't know what the limits were. So she didn't acknowledge them. So naivete works its way <laughs> right. in entrepreneurship. Exactly me. right. Exactly right. So, um, you know, what if somebody figures out what you're doing and copies it or tries to do it better than you're doing it? She said, as long as you keep evolving, they can't get ahead of you they'll always be behind you. So I think there's got to be a core fundamental, obviously, that be a prevailing brand. That quote really helped me think about my response to the courageous reference. There is courage to look deep inside you and to truly understand what inspires you and drives you Yeah, and not to take necessarily the path that some company has set for you or expected of you. Right. I mean, my mother did want me to be a doctor. Let's just put it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just a failure. I'm a business person. But (laughs) I was at a trade show many years ago and I was a speaker and they made a mistake on my name badge and they put Dr. Tom Siri and I took a picture of it and showed my mother. I said, finally, you can be proud. (laughs) 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 Even if it's a total fraud. (laughs) That's right. A typo. But I know doctors now and I have many friends who are doctors, so close, but not no cigar. <laughs> Let's talk more about Nikki Kennard. I did do some research on her because you've mentioned her to me before and her brand of Space NK was really intriguing to me because recently they must have introduced this idea of, say, for instance, virtual consultations around their products and how, or, or products they carry and how to really help a individual get informed and and have that experience they could have maybe had at the Nordstrom counter or wherever, you know, wherever the space NK is uh, located. I think, are they outside of London? 
They are. I think they had maybe 65 locations in the UK. Oh, wow. Okay. The rest of their 80 locations in the US and North America. What do you think makes for a good mentor? And so you said Nikki says some very appropriate things and very helpful statements, but there's another step, which is actually mentoring and knowing, knowing you and knowing what you need to get to the next level or to overcome some situation or deal with the challenge. Is there something that you, you see in the mentors that you've developed over your career that is a commonality that makes them stand out? Well, I think I have many, many mentors and some of them may not even realize that they're a mentor to me, right? But it's just over time in our relationship, I'll take several pages out of their book and put them to work in, in my life and use them as touchstones. And so even if it's not as active a mentorship, it means a lot to me. And my board of directors include mentors for me, men and women. And the women, especially Adele Oliva and Nikki, they'll cheer you on and provide helpful advice, advocate for you as a CEO, advocate for the brand. All of that is very important, but it's the ones who can you know, kind of hit you in the head a little bit if you're not realizing something enough or pull you aside and say, let's work through this together. Let's roll up our sleeves and work through this together. I've had experiences that are probably applicable here. And I just think that is so generous when somebody's willing to, you know, put themselves in your shoes and come alongside you as a friend and colleague. One of the things we talked about briefly was just the challenge of becoming an executive CEO in, in the industry, many obstacles potentially are there and you've overcome those. Traditionally, there is an emphasis on, oh, you need to be really good at, say, networking and that is a really critical skill. But it sounds like mentorship may be even more important. Do you think that's true? Or it's like maybe there are other factors that you think if a woman who's you know, in a director level or VP level at a athletics company right now is aspiring to be a CEO. Is there something that you would suggest are things to emphasize and work at and address to uh, make it to that next level or to get to that level? No, I'll think through like the vice president level, if you will, now a formal member of leadership in a company. It is important to realize now that you have the power of your personality and the power of your position. And those things combine to make a different impression for your teammates. So especially in smaller entrepreneurial environments, it's easy to say, hey, I'm just another member of the team, right? But it's not true anymore. Because if you say it, it must mean, she must mean something by that. And you can lead by mistake if you're not careful with that combination of position and personality. And so I take that pretty seriously. The CEO title is one of responsibility for sure and accountability, but there are times when you just want to be on the team that it really gets in the way. Yeah. <laughs> it, it changes people's demeanor in the, what they say, what information they want to provide, how polished things need to feel. I think one of the hardest moments I've had as a CEO has been that I will say repeatedly, we're an experimental driven culture and 
I want to see your 60% product, not the 99.9% product. And so let's get a signal. Let's not get it to perfection. And yet there's something about wanting to demonstrate to the CEO that you're incredibly thoughtful and you've thought all through and there's no gaps at all that makes that request oftentimes not met in the past. My team now seems to have found a path to that much easier, but I've definitely seen that as a challenge. I think that's a very common challenge. And the way we talk about it at Color Science is don't wait until the big reveal. Because now if it's a big reveal and you have any response other than it's beautiful and perfect, it needs no adjustment, then you can really discourage somebody without meaning to. And and all you needed to do was have a chance to consult along the way and ask some questions. I don't even, I don't direct at a product development level, right? I ask, why are we doing this? How are we doing this? What's the final aim? Do we have to do all of that? Or can we do one thing really beautifully instead of 10 really good? Yeah, don't surprise me is what I tell my team. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I, I don't like surprise parties or surprises at work. <laughs> I, <laughs> show me how you're getting there, the hypothesis, how you're going to test, what are some statistically significant results? And then let's keep iterating. So I want to ask you this, so this is, it sounds like it's a little bit orthogonal to our conversation, but I just, it, I've got to ask you this. How can you carry a, that mantra of let's test our way there, experiment in a world where it kind of has to follow a waterfall methodology of you know, getting the product approved, you know, getting it tested, getting it through all sorts of stages So you can't just produce, say, three serums and go try them out and see what customers think. You're kind of committed. Is there a way to de-risk that process of finding your next innovation or ways to introduce experimentation in the world of CPG that I truly don't know? I didn't know it either. I'm I'm still not sure that I do. But we have a unique opportunity because our physician partners participate with us in our development process. And we have advisors on the board in academia that we consult with along the way. And when we do that from concept and needs assessment first, then we can do a pilot clinical trial with just two or three sites right before we roll it out to 150 sites. And so that has really been efficient, but also, frankly, more fun because now you've got a lot of clinical experience going on at the same time across practices all over the country and getting feedback and then letting them talk to each other. They know that who else is in the study so they can consult with each other on what they're seeing. And it allows us to get a lot of safety evaluation in real time and ahead of launching. We also get fantastic clinical results before and after photos and in some cases, you know, statistical significance for what we're testing. So I think having our professional partners is really the key to our innovation at Color Science. And there's also, you're learning together. So it's not starting from scratch and saying, we're bringing forward a new product you've never seen before. And I need to convince you, you need it first, right? (laughs) Because that's all been established by them. 
clearly you have your finger on the pulse of skincare. I need to ask you, what are some of the trends that you foresee or are already in, in play that have caught your team's attention, your own? For the consumer, our consumer is a health conscious woman who makes healthcare decisions for herself and her family. So she's looking for real information about ingredients. And one of the things that happened this past year is FDA came out with new information about sunscreen ingredients, and that can be a pretty confusing space. So it's all publicly available information worth looking into that they have proposed that really titanium dioxide and zinc oxide are the only safe ingredients. Dermatologists have said, reach for a physical sunscreen first for years. But you remember the lifeguard with the white triangle on their nose. That's how hard it is to formulate with titanium dioxide and zinc oxide. So being an up and comer, people are often surprised to learn that we can achieve skin colored sun care for all skin types that can be a physical protection from sun, also pollution, blue light, infrared, all of the above. I've done a previous podcast about skin of color and really digging into how underserved that consumer customer can be in the market space of aesthetics. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to hear that your products naturally align to a diverse population and serving their needs. We do our best to meet all of the Fitzpatrick skin types. We're still, I think we have a little bit more work to do at the upper level on the six, but we're, we're working hard on it and we'll keep it coming. I was meeting with a ad agency probably two years ago now that pointed to different trends that are happening in the world of aesthetics and skincare. And one of the comments they made in their pitch deck was, one of their presentation moments was how the world has shifted dramatically from the influencer being the dermatologist to the influencer being that person on YouTube or, or the vlogger on YouTube or the influencer on Instagram and how they had even told their clients to stop putting on their packaging dermatologist approved or you know some sort of indication that a dermatologist was endorsing that product. It sounds like you don't agree with that trend or at least maybe your target customers don't agree with that. Could you speak to that a bit and what do you see in the changing world of influence and endorsement? I'd love to. I think even five, six years ago, influencers started to move away from being paid per mention to really doing an evaluation of their own and honestly putting forward wation, not necessarily a sale to their audience. And I think as that shift, now we're seeing the American Society for Dermatologic Surgery, their consumer survey this year showed that the dermatologist is above influencers, girlfriends, family members. So I think they've come back into the driver's seat. We don't write dermatologist approved on our packaging. So I think that gets associated with like nine out of 10 dentists like this toothpaste, you know? And we always want to know who that one didn't, (laughs) (laughs) right? Yeah, there really weren't 10 anyway. So it's a it's a construct for making the claim, right? But I think where we've come to now is that dermatologists 
as they've gotten involved in social media on their own, maybe to market their practices or maybe just for fun, they've come back into the fore as the leading influencers. So I'm leaning into that. I think that's the right path forward. And telemedicine is going to shore it right up. And telemedicine is here to stay. So I'm very interested in seeing how that takes us forward from here. I completely agree with that perspective and that I think COVID-19 has convinced us, and I say us, our society writ large, that medical expertise is extraordinarily important. It's what you turn to when you need advice. And I've seen surveys recently that suggest that consumers have dramatically increased the rate of trust they feel in whether it's our primary care physician or just doctors in general. So I think that's a real positive, and I agree that should translate well for, say, dermatologists and other aesthetic professionals. We did talk a little bit about Instagram there and social media. It feels like that is a space that we've experimented a lot within Instagram, and we've had pretty good success, and we've been doing it in a very organic way, not buying fake followers and all that. But we have a really interesting story to tell, which is, you know, we can talk about any aesthetic treatment, results, before and afters, videos. And so I'm not saying my team has it easy. If they're listening to this, I appreciate everything you do. But for a product that's sort of static and is, you know, trapped in a container and doesn't necessarily have a personality, what have you discovered in, or have you still been challenged by having success in Instagram as an example channel? We've had a big year over the past year on Instagram. And we just surpassed 100,000 followers last month. And I think in part because we have launched more Instagrammable products. So we used to be famous for a product that is designed to be invisible, which is a brush-on powder sunscreen. And it's a fantastic product, but you can't see it. So you see people using the brush and showing the brush, but when it goes on the skin, can't tell it's there. So our tagline is even looks like nothing protects from everything. We launched an eye product a little over a year ago and it rocketed onto the market and onto social because it's very visible and transforming. And even still, there was one of the health and beauty editors, she ran out of her total eye product needed to get on a Zoom call, was in a panic to get some more. So we were able to get some to her. And then she wrote an article about it. You know, I can't be on Zoom without my total eye. (laughs) So it's very social. And I, I think also because it's such a common concern. One of my team's observations on social media, in particular Instagram, has been that it is indeed hard to get engagement on treatments that give subtle results or not instantaneous. And it's interesting here you say if the product is sort of hard for others to visualize, it doesn't work great in a visual medium. So are you finding that you're actually going to start reformulating a lot of your products or it really just factors into your future pipeline of product innovation and creation? I think it factors in. We really go first in our product planning to therapeutic need. And so what solution is needed by physician partners who are doing treatments? What 
solutions are needed for people with skin concerns, the top five in particular, acne, rosacea, hyperpigmentation, anti-aging objectives. And so that's really where we start. And then from there, we don't yet go to social. We come back to skin biology and find the pathways that we can either enhance or interfere with to have a better outcome, melanogenesis, for example. So that's where we go. And that's all done with our physician partners. We were frankly surprised when the eye product went kind of wild on Instagram. And it's wonderful, but we can't do what we do aiming in that direction only. We really need to meet her. The way we describe it in our social pursuits is we need to meet her where she's seeking. So wherever she's looking for solutions, that's where we need to be. If it's in the doctor's office, great. If not, let's bring her into our ecosystem to begin with, because we can refer to doctors. So that's kind of how we approach social media. It's interesting. I, I've had that conversation with lots of doctors where I emphasize the need to be, you said omni-channel, I would say multi-channel. I don't know. I guess I could look that up. My diff- <laughs> The difference is ex- <laughs> the doctor tendency in marketing I have found is to look for that one sort of answer. And I'll say, well, while I am very vested and interested in you concluding that nothing matters more than real self, I want you to know that it would be incredibly disingenuous of me to suggest that a consumer who's thinking about an aesthetic procedure over six months or a year is just going to plant themselves on real self and never go outside of those bounds. It just goes against digital and how easy it is to find information across multiple channels and, and mediums. And so I would love to just get your sense because you've worked with physicians so closely and you, you know the challenges they have for just operating their practices, let alone how do you get noticed? How do you break out? How do you get found? Are there things you would advise a doctor if they were listening to this on things you've discovered? It could be the omni-channel approach, but maybe others that you think are helpful for them to achieve success for their practice in terms of marketing? We have so many varieties of practice partner from, you know, single provider, single location to enormous practices. And some are very adept at the take-home care education. Some are very adept at e-commerce. And now we're doing virtual events together, right? But it varies a ton. So it probably is a bit dependent on the practice manager, practice developer, and what skill set they bring to the party and how much the practice owner wants to adopt those strategies. But we are more than happy to bring our marketing expertise to the table. So even from Skin Medica, right? It's like we have a boundary here. It's the walls of the practice and the hours of the practice form a boundary. And so let us open those boundaries up for you. We don't want to take your patients away from you. We can't. We don't provide treatment. We're not a clinic. So it's taken a lot of trust building over the years. But now with a pandemic and economic downturn that goes with it again, we can be an economic cornerstone. And we've made the effort to have loyalty program and other protocols for engaging with the practice that help the patient get a better outcome and the practice gets a better outcome. And they know if a sale 
was made and they get their recommendation fee for that. And we take the fulfillment off their shoulders. So I think we're uniquely positioned that way to really once and for all help them experience a broader marketing platform just for, you know, our partnership. That's been our approach. Well, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, it inspired me to think of our approach to helping practices beyond our services we offer on our platform to, well, here's what we're learning. This is what we have experienced in Instagram, what works, what doesn't. We have a whole course about that. And doctors have asked me, why are you sharing that? And I will respond saying, well, I hope you understand my alignment is simply to see you succeed. Right. As you grow, we will grow with you. Right. And if it takes you to other mediums that where we don't make any money, it's okay. It'll, it'll all come back in some form or fashion. I think Merck has that saying, with good science, profits will follow. So I don't know, maybe I would say with, with good deeds, profits will follow. Yeah. He used to say, when you focus on patients, profits will follow. Yeah. And it's so true. I would love to spend a lot more time talking with you. And unfortunately, my audience has probably some other things they need to do with their day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to loop back to the theme of this show of really standing out, getting noticed, and breaking out from the noise. And are there any last thoughts you had for small business owners and operators, particularly in our case, doctors are probably the most likely audience members to hear this, that you would suggest recommend to either take on as an individual or as a business to see that achievement to really differentiate? I see different types of outreach and I think they're all equally valuable. So I see dermatologists who are available to the media. They'll be on television for the medical segment. I think those are important. Dr. Sabina Fabi in San Diego is regularly on the dermatology or medical consult portion of the news. I think those are important in credentialing. I think society, so the American Academy of Dermatology and the professional societies having a role in those brings a ton of visibility and credential. And then those societies often have committees. So the Women's Dermatological Society has a health and beauty editor panel, right? And that's a committee that makes sure that there's a responsible path to real information for the major magazines who are really putting out content on their websites and to consumers in magazines all the time. And even product awards, you can be a judge on product awards for the health and beauty magazines. New Beauty is pretty famous for that. And I think Real Self is an important avenue. I think if consumers can find you on Real Self and understand what you offer and what other consumers have thought about it, I think that's an important resource. And social is important. It just is. We did a campaign on Instagram this year called Derms Do Summer. And it took the dermatologist out of the scary lab coat and outside to the beach. You know, that they're, these are genuinely delightful people playing with their family outside too. They just wear sunscreen when they do it. They're not the police of the beach. They are the, you know, enablers of playing outside. So that was really fun too. And it really was relatable and very warm. 
I completely relate to that because every time I would go to a dermatology show and I'd had a little bit too much sun prior, I would be apologetic the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry. I know, I know, I should know better, but I've seen my share of tans on dermatologists that doesn't look like it's airbrushed. So I'm saying <laughs> we have to live life, but it, that's right. To protect the skin is obviously an important piece. I want to thank you so much. If my audience at Hey Siri wants to learn more about color science or about you, what are some of the ways they can connect? I'm on LinkedIn and of course, colorscience.com, mfisher at colorscience.com. And the company is on the usual social platforms. I'm on Instagram. I'm at Color Science CEO. And so any, any number of ways to connect and I welcome all of it. Fantastic. I think it would be just amazing if someday somebody found you and had you become their mentor because you would be fantastic at that. And thank you. I honor the success you've had to date. I am willing to bet a box of donuts that you're not done. There's going to be more. And I, I really look forward to that. So thank you for spending time on the Hey Siri podcast. And I look forward to meeting you in person when we feel that is a safe thing to do. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. I know you're off this and not done with Real Self too, and we'll be off to bigger things. And I hope we do that with our paths crossing together. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. The best way to reach me is just send an email to heysiri at realself.com. That's H-E-Y-S-E-E-R-Y at realself.com. We look at every single message that comes in and respond. And if you have feedback that's positive, love it. Challenges, even better. Want to be a guest, even more delightful. So please get in touch with us. Want to know more from our audience and what's working, what's not.